Please stand and turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. Let's turn now to Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. And blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. 
the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. You may be seated. If I were to ask you right now to explain the gospel to me in two minutes or less, I'd like to invite you to think for a minute about what you might say. We, we want, we pray for, I, I hope we look for opportunities to tell people about Jesus. But do you know, when, when those opportunities arise, what are you actually going to say? What have you said? Or have you ever gotten to that moment and frozen and not known what to say? Well, there, there are a number of good ways to approach this, um, to kind of sum up the gospel message. Um, I would advise you, it's, it can help you very practically to try to get solidly in your mind a sort of outline of the gospel, a kind of series of mental pegs uh, where you can hang the content of the good news about Jesus. And I've taught you some of these outlines before, more than one actually. There's the um, identity mission call outline that I learned from a man named Rico Tice. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And then what difference does it make or what does he call his disciples to? Um, another one uh, I've taught some of you before. You'll find this from more than one writer, uh, Greg Gilbert's one, more famously J.I. Packer. And it goes, God, sin, Christ, response. So who is God, his creator and the lawgiver? Um, uh, how have we broken his law? What does that deserve? Who is Jesus and what has he done? And how does he deal with the problem of sin? And then finally, what must we do to be saved? God, sin, Christ, response. So those are both very good, very useful outlines. Uh, but I'm not going to focus on either one of them tonight. Tonight I'm going to focus on a third one that's also good, um, which you may have also heard before. And it goes like this. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude. So what has gone wrong because of our sin against God? That's guilt. What has God done about it in Christ? It's grace. And then how should we respond to that saving work of God's gratitude. That gospel outline, that way of summarizing so much of Christian faith and life, um, also turns out to be a very apt way to um, think about this, this famous psalm that we're considering tonight, Psalm 51. And so that's going to be actually our outline for this psalm tonight. It's going to be guilt, verses 1 through 6, grace, verses 7 to 12, and gratitude, verses 13 to 19. All right, so we're going to start with guilt. Now, when, when people talk about guilt these days, what they're often talking about is the feeling of guilt. I feel guilty, and that feeling makes me unhappy. And so what I want to do is I want to do something to get rid of this bad feeling, uh, and feel happy again instead. Uh, there's a big difference, isn't there, between saying, I feel guilty, 
versus saying, I am guilty. Those are two very different statements. One of them is subjective. It's talking about your inward state of mind. And it could, you could feel guilty whether you're guilty or not. Sometimes people feel guilty when they've really done nothing wrong, right? The other kind is objective. It's talking about your status in relationship to something outside yourself. And there are all kinds of people who are guilty even though they don't feel guilty at all. Um, David, I think, after his sin, his great sin with uh, the adultery and murder and deception involving Bathsheba and Uriah and others, um, well, I guess we could wonder, did David feel guilty at first? Maybe. I don't know. Probably a little bit, although at first, surely, he tried to kind of hold those feelings down, to suppress those guilty feelings. But here's the thing. Whether or not David felt guilty before Nathan confronted him, the fact is he was guilty in the sight of God. And this is what the prophet Nathan was saying when he came to David and confronted him and said, David, you are the man. And so here in Psalm 51, what David's doing is he's approaching God Not as someone with guilty feelings who wants to be comforted and reassured that actually you're okay. You shouldn't feel guilty at all. To have those feelings taken away, don't be so hard on yourself. That's not what David is doing. David is approaching God as someone who knows that he is guilty. Objectively, he has sinned. And his sin deserves the severest punishment that God could muster against him. And there is no one then David can turn to except for the one he sinned against. Say to him, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Just in that opening verse, there's this whole bouquet, almost, of words describing God. Characteristics of God that David is appealing to. That's an interesting thing about this psalm, the way David confesses his sins. It's it's very God-oriented. This is a psalm about God, first and foremost. That first phrase, have mercy on me. Uh, You may notice in the ESV footnote, uh, it could be translated, be gracious to me, and that would be a fair translation. He's saying, show me your favor, is the idea behind that um, request. God's favor. Um, He's asking for God's favor, even though I don't deserve it. Saying, treat me with kindness instead of condemnation. So he's appealing first to the grace of God, the way that God gives good things to evil people. Uh, The next characteristic of God is in that second line. According to your steadfast love. And don't laugh, because I know I'm going to start sounding like a broken record eventually, but it's there again. I did not put it there. That word chesed that I keep telling you about, it's come up a lot recently between Micah and Ruth and so on. But here it is again. It's that covenantal love and loyalty of God to his people and to his promises. So we have God's grace. We have God's chesed, steadfast love for his people. And, And then in the third line... Um, There's that word mercy again in English. It's different in Hebrew. It's this special word mercy for God's compassion, 
God's compassion. Grace is uh, when God looks at us in our sin and he gives us something good instead of what we deserve. That's grace. God's mercy is when God looks at us in our sin and he treats us with compassion. He sees our need. He sees our bondage. He sees our helplessness in our sin and he treats us accordingly. So grace, steadfast love, and mercy. These three character qualities of God. That's where this psalm begins. It's because of who God is. It's something in the character of God, what God is like. That is why David, guilty David, can come to that God and acknowledge his guilt and yet expect to find there not condemnation, but something else. What is it that he's asking for? He's asking for that sin to be, I love this, blotted out, washed away, cleansed, removed. Um, Notice what he's not asking for. He's not asking for God to ignore his sin, kind of brush over, sweep it under the rug, turn a blind eye to it. Let's just pretend that didn't happen. Give me a second chance, maybe. Um, David could have said, um, Lord, you know, I know I did these bad things, but... On the other hand, look at all the good that I've done. I mean, remember David and Goliath. Um, remember when I killed the giant, you know? Remember, remember also that time when um, Saul was there and I could have killed Saul when he was chasing me around in the wilderness and I didn't kill Saul? Um, can we let those good things that I've done kind of outweigh this bad thing and kind of cancel each other out? Or, or God, can't you just overlook this just this once? Or God, you're the God of second chances, so let me have one more chance to get this right. David does not ask any of those things. None of those things are true confession of sin. None of those things represent the gospel good news that David is appealing to in the character and promises of God. That's not what God is like, essentially. That's not who God is. It's not how it works. And so this problem of David's sin can't just be ignored. It cannot be fixed or replaced by anything good that David can do. The only way that we can escape the guilt, the real objective guilt of sin, is for God himself to wash it away, to cleanse it, to remove it, to blot it out. The phrase, blot out my transgressions, that's an especially vivid one. Um, I love what David asks for here, uh, there in verse 1. Um, uh, it's, it's the word that... Um, Appears other places in the Old Testament, for example, when God uses it before the flood, before the flood of Noah, when he says there that he is going to blot out mankind from the face of the earth. Same word. And so you could think about what David's done. He realized it's actually David who deserves to be blotted out from the face of the earth, right? From the erased from the pages of history, struck out from the roster of God's children. You see what he's asking for. It's the opposite of that. What he's asking, hoping, trusting, is that instead of him being blotted out, that it will be his sins that God blots out. Notice, again, we're getting at this a little bit earlier, but notice again that David does not um, downplay his sin. He does not excuse his sin. He doesn't compare himself to other people whose sins might seem worse than his. He doesn't try to explain it away or shift the blame at all. He says, flat out, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. 
Uh, he knows it's futile to try to cover up his sin in the eyes of the all-seeing God. And so all he can do is just come and say, yes, Lord, I have no excuse. You are right. I have sinned. And that's very instructive for us because that's really the first step towards receiving that full and free forgiveness that we long for and that we need from the Lord. The first step towards free and full forgiveness is full and free confession of sin. Uh, Confession of sin means simply agreeing with God about your sin, acknowledging it fully and without reserve, saying, here's what I did, and it was wrong. It's ever before me. I know my transgression. Um, Confessing sin also means something else. It means recognizing that whoever else we may have hurt or offended uh, among other other people, um, ultimately, we have sinned against the holiness and love and purity of God. And this is what David's getting at in verse 4 when he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Um, Obviously, there's a sense, and David wouldn't deny this, there's a sense in which David has sinned against all kinds of people. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah, obviously. sinned against his, his other wives, against Joab, against the army, against the whole nation of Israel. But beneath it all, in the final analysis, whose law has he violated? What makes those sins against other people sins and not merely um, offenses? What makes them sinful and not just hurtful? What makes them sinful is that he sinned against the Lord. It's the law of God. If you take God out of the picture, then all you're left with is just a moral jungle where might makes right. That's all that's left. There's no reason to call people's actions right or wrong at all, good or evil. It's important to realize that all of God's law, including the part about loving our neighbor, is ultimately about our relationship to him, first and foremost, our responsibility to him. It is his words, his judgment that counts um, verse, as uh, David says, verse 4, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And so I'd actually encourage you, the next time you find yourself needing to apologize to another person, um, next time you need to ask a person's forgiveness, confess the way you've sinned against them, you need to ask yourself, have I confessed this sin to God? Anytime you're confessing your sin to another person, you've got to make sure you've confessed it to the Lord because it's ultimately against him that we're sinning even more sinning against other people. Um, now, there's one more aspect to David's guilt um, that we can learn from these opening verses. So sometimes when people are uh, maybe caught or confronted with some kind of wrongdoing, uh, they'll admit it to a point because they can't deny it anymore. They're caught red-handed. But sometimes they'll respond, they'll kind of hedge that confession by saying, okay, well, I made a mistake. Yes, I, I made a mistake. And the implication is, yes, I did that, but, but that's not who I am. Um, that's not what I'm really like. That's the exception, not the rule. I just sort of slipped up in this case. I want you to notice here how David confesses not only the fact of his sin, not only that he has sinned, that he's committed this particular transgression, but that he is a sinner. There's a big difference between those two things. Never forget that it's not the sins that you commit that make you a sinner. The Bible teaches that we're sinners by nature. Before 
we've actually committed any sins at all. We start out as sinners, and then that's why we go and commit sins. That's what David's getting at in verse 5 when he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying anything against his mother there. What he's saying is that from the earliest moment of my existence as a person, I've been a sinner. And so when I sin, I'm, I'm not... I'm not at that moment doing something contrary to my real self, my real character. Rather, I am revealing what's really inside. I'm revealing my character. I'm living out my sinfulness as a person. See, being a real Christian, really receiving and enjoying God's remedy for sin, the forgiveness of sins, has to start here. Like the tax collector we read about in Luke God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Not just for a few isolated things that I've done or I've made mistakes, but for who I am apart from you. And not only feel guilty, I am guilty, and now I'm seeking your grace. That according to your steadfast love and mercy, on the basis of your character, who you are, God, that you would blot out my transgressions, that you'd wash and cleanse me. And it's that theme of cleansing I want to turn to here in this second section of the psalm, starting in verse 7, uh, what we're labeling the grace section. We've already been talking a lot about grace, right? You can't talk really about guilt without talking about grace, um, but uh, at least in this context. But if the first section focuses on mainly on what David has done that makes him guilty, this next section focuses on what God can do to take that guilt away. And so the first thing David says is, purge me with hyssop. You think, well, what's, what's hyssop? Well, hyssop uh, was a type of plant that um, uh, would be used by the Israelite priests. It's described in Leviticus and Numbers. And they would dip it um, into a liquid. Sometimes, uh, in one case, it was the blood of a sacrifice. In another case, it was a special water that was mixed with the ashes of a burnt offering. And they would dip the hyssop in, and then they would use that hyssop to sprinkle on people or things um, that were ceremonially unclean, and this was part of the process for making those things or people become ritually clean again in that symbolic, ceremonial way. And what David's doing here is he's using that imagery of that symbolic, ceremonial, outward cleansing, and he's praying, Lord, would you do that with me as a person, inwardly, in my heart, a spiritual reality inside me? Take the, the moral corruption of my soul. Take the guilt of what I've done and wash it away in a way that only you can do. Wash me, he says, and I shall be whiter than snow. Um, this is a word picture that comes up later in the Bible in Isaiah when the Lord promises Israel that even though your sins be like scarlet, that bright red stain, they will be white as snow. Makes me think of Shakespeare. Uh, Shakespeare's play Macbeth, where Macbeth's wife, who's been complicit in the, the murder of the king, she starts to lose her mind. She starts to lose touch with reality. And, and she keeps seeing um, this spot of blood on her hand, and she can't wash it out no matter how hard she tries. And it's starting to drive her crazy um, because she simply cannot wash it away no matter how much water she uses. It's that guilt that she cannot remove we cannot remove our own guilt any more than she could by washing it ourselves. We can't absolve ourselves. We cannot resolve the problem of our sin. 
But David is showing us that there is someone who can, that the Lord can do what we cannot. And David is counting on that here. Lord, you must wash me if I'm going to be clean. And notice that he has sort of a two-sided request here. He has kind of a negative and a positive aspect. On the one hand, he wants God to take away his sin, to hide his face from it. Um, which is not asking God to turn a blind eye. He's actually asking God to do something um, inside him as well, something real, not just to ignore it, but to actually create a change within him, to change David's character from the inside out. God's forgiveness is, uh, from the outside, it's the way he views us. But then he always acts inside us as well to create something inwardly that matches uh, what he has already chosen to see through Christ. So David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Change me on the inside so I'm no longer characterized by sin anymore, but by the holiness that can come from you. And so in the gospel, what God does first is he says, you are forgiven, you are righteous, Not because of anything in you, but because of what I'm doing for you, what I'm declaring on the basis of Christ's obedience that I've given to you. But he doesn't leave it there. He does something inside to cleanse us within so that there's a match, so that what's inside corresponds to the way, to what God has said about us in the first place. Uh, Let's go on. He says, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Um, Some Christians can get a little bit confused by this verse think, wait a second, I thought we believed in uh, eternal security. I thought we believed in the perseverance of the saints. So uh, how could God take away his Holy Spirit from somebody? Uh, And of course, that's us thinking of the Holy Spirit um, through the the full revelation of the New Testament after Pentecost and the way Christians uh, experience the presence, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit today. Uh, David is in, in his kind of place in history. He's thinking of something a little bit different here when he writes this. Uh, Let's think back to the history of David and uh, where the Holy Spirit is mentioned in First, in First Samuel. When Saul became king, says that the Holy Spirit rushed upon him to empower Saul to lead Israel in battle. It was that Holy Spiritual anointing for Saul to be king. When Saul rejects the Lord, and or when Saul sins against the Lord, the Lord rejects Saul, it says in First Samuel 16, 14, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. The prophet Samuel had anointed David as king instead of Saul. And what happened at that anointing? Well, it says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Departed from Saul, rushed upon David. And so here in Psalm 51, we have to think here of David the king, the anointed king, anointed by the Holy Spirit for this office, not wanting his kingship to end the way Saul's did. So the Holy Spirit has anointed him as God's representative over Israel. But that anointing can be taken away. He serves at the Lord's pleasure and at the Lord's will. And so here he's essentially admitting, Lord, I recognize I deserve, by rights, I deserve to forfeit my crown, to forfeit that anointing, to lose my throne. I have done everything to deserve to lose it. But Lord, I'm asking you instead for something that I do not deserve. Instead, Lord, restore to me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. I've read this psalm so many times that we pass by these kind of requests. We think about all the times you've asked God for forgiveness. I think sometimes we lose sight 
I kind of lose track of what an outlandish thing that is for us to ask of God. What a plot twist is that? That we could say, Lord, I'm, I'm guilty. Lord, I've broken the law. I've done everything that deserves death and condemnation. But I'm going to be so bold as to ask for the opposite outcome. For life and blessing and everlasting happiness for me, this guilty sinner. How could we have the nerve? How could David have the nerve after all that he had done? You think about his story. To ask for that kind of forgiveness. That level of undeserved favor from God. And I'll tell you why. It's because of what we've already seen about the character of God. Who God is. What he's like. It's because of the promises of God. What he's committed himself to in his word. To save sinners who turn from their sin and seek his forgiveness. And very importantly... It is because of the work of God, as we saw this morning, what God has done. God has done what it takes for sinners like us to be forgiven. That's why we can ask for it. God has done what we could not do by taking on a human nature. Christ was able to live that life that we hadn't lived. He was able to to die the death that we deserve to die. He was able to be our substitute. He was able to arrange that great exchange. His righteousness given to us as our sin was laid on him on the cross where he shed his blood that has that cleansing power to wash away that crimson stain of sin and to make us white of snow. Again, that's the gospel. That's who God is. That's what God has promised. And that's the work that God has done for us in Jesus. And we really... When we really get that, when we get it deep into our hearts, the the wonder, the amazement, the the extreme self-giving sacrificial love that goes into that kind of grace, that is when the Holy Spirit brings forth in our hearts that gratitude. Gratitude that's taking third place tonight in the outline and in this psalm, guilt, Grace and gratitude, which is where David lands here, starting in verse 13. What is he going to do in response when God answers this prayer? Once he receives this forgiveness he's asking for, he's going to respond in faithful action. He's going to, to begin with, he's going to teach other sinners about this gracious God. He's going to make this known far and wide. He's going to help other people to turn from their sin. When you deliver me from guilt, verse 14, God of my salvation, I'm going to respond in worship, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Um, many of you were here last Sunday morning when I preached on Micah 6, where Micah poses that rhetorical question, with what shall I come before the Lord? Should I come with burnt offerings, uh, thousands of animals, rivers of oil, my firstborn child? And Micah says, no, he's shown you, oh man, what is good. It's not complicated. It's simple. It's justice, chesed, and humility steadfast love and humility. And really, at the end of this psalm, David's teaching us exactly the same thing. It's the same theme that the prophet Micah took up there. It was David says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. He says, the sacrifices of God, what God's really looking for from us, is a broken spirit, 
a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. A heart that is broken over our sin because we have seen it in all of its ugliness and the tragedy of its violation of the holy majesty of God. Walk humbly with your God. It's the same thing that Micah was teaching us last week. And it's, it's why, it's why later in the New Testament, the book of Romans, after spending 11 chapters explaining the gospel in all of its glorious fullness, Paul turns a corner in chapter 12 and he says, now here's what God wants you to do in response to all this I've just been teaching you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The point is God does not need from us um, a sacrifice of atonement anymore. That's done. That's been offered once and for all on the cross by the Lord Jesus. It's, that's over. The Lord Jesus has shed all the blood that's needed, uh, all the blood that needs to be shed for you to be forgiven. And there's nothing you can add to that. There's nothing you can give that God um, give to God that will put him in your debt, that will make him love you more. It just can't be done uh, because he already loves you as infinitely, as much as he possibly can. But there is this sacrifice that he is looking for from his people. He's looking for from you, and that is you. And not just part of you, but your whole self. Your whole self given to him in gratitude for everything that he's done for you. It's a heart that says, oh God, I, I am yours. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. I belong not to myself, but to you. And I, I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve your forgiveness. I don't deserve anything of what Jesus has done for me. There's nothing I could ever do to pay for it. So I'm not even going to try, but I will do this. I'm going to offer myself. As the hymn says, all that I am and ever hope to be, I give it all to thee. Guilt, grace, gratitude. That's not, that's not just a good outline to remember if you want to explain the gospel to somebody else. Is that? That's the shape of your entire life. From now and into eternity. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we know our transgressions, our sin is ever before us. We are, by nature, children of wrath, guilty, condemned before your holy law. But you have done what the law could not do, what we could never do. Your grace is greater than all our sin. And you have done what it took to save us the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And so in response to all that goodness, Lord, we rest in him, trust him, lay hold of that gospel, those promises by faith tonight. And Lord, we ask that you would work within us as hearts of gratitude to be able to make known far and wide how gracious you are, to be able to help other people to find that same forgiveness and turn from their sins and find the hope that's found in Jesus. Help us, Lord. Only you can help us do is to be able to offer our whole selves as living sacrifices to you. Holy and acceptable 
only because of what you have done for us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.